it was very quiet and it was a really nice like late spring early summer day and then suddenly it started shelling but it was like I pass the house and that house is hit. And then I run and I pass the second house and I, I was constantly followed by shells that were falling behind me, behind my back. So that was a real like life or death situation, but you just, you don't think, you just run and try to try to survive. So this is really the first time we had found ourselves having to actively help people inside of a conflict area. The risks humanitarian workers have to take are far bigger than they've ever been. Everything had to be absolutely right because, you know, you're putting lives at risk, your own lives at risk. This is Forced to Flee, a podcast from UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency. I'm Anita Rani. Episode 5, Line of Fire. After the collapse of uh, the um, communist state systems and the end of the Cold War, a lot of the conflicts were not between states, but within states, which meant that our mandate to protect refugees, which was really depending on whether they crossed international borders or not, didn't really fully meet the need to help protect people and to alleviate their suffering. So, as a result, we became more and more involved in internal conflict situations. Former High Commissioner for Refugees, Sadako Ogata. On her watch in the 1990s, UNHCR saw a major shift. In this episode, we're looking at some of the biggest humanitarian crises since the agency was founded 70 years ago. Initially, staff only worked in countries that were relatively safe and primarily assisted refugees. Now they're active in conflict zones, helping those affected by war and those internally displaced. We had to work in war zones, which meant that our own attempt to claim neutrality, impartiality and win confidence uh, among all combatants sometimes worked to some extent. But in other situations, we had to expose our staff in conflict areas, which meant that peacekeeping forces were sent to help humanitarian operations. That was the case in Bosnia and Herzegovina. In this episode, we'll take you to Sarajevo and the longest siege in modern history. We'll also go to Yemen, one of the world's worst humanitarian crises today. Part 1. Bosnia. Early 1990s. Yugoslavia begins to break apart. Bosnia and Herzegovina, which is made up of several ethnic and minority groups, moves towards independence. In April 1992, the Bosnian War breaks out. Bosnian Serb forces lay siege to Sarajevo. That siege lasts for nearly four years. Sarajevo is a city in a valley, uh, surrounded by mountains. 
in a real like narrow valley so you are seen in several places in the in the city you are totally exposed if the troops are positioned on the hills snipers were firing constantly there was no logical order when and why and i mean they would just start shooting shelling and they would shell all the time and you know i mean you could not sometimes you could not even hide because you, it was unexpected Leila Rajanovic and her childhood friend Yasmina Alibigovic both studied medicine and grew up in Sarajevo. You had always to walk because there's no, no public transport, there's nothing. And then you had to cross the bridge, which was actually quite exposed to the hills around Sarajevo. And, you know, you had to cross the bridge zigzag in order to avoid sniper shooting and sniper shots. And then, you know, you cross that bridge and then you, you used to hide behind the building and then sort of investigate a bit if there will be shelling or not. Then another run again and then hide again. And this is how it was like every day. As the conflict spread, supplies started to run out. The electricity was cut, water was cut, supply of food, uh, medicines was gone. I remember when my mom went to the market, used to be a market, and people were selling things from their gardens, very few things. I, rem I remember when she came back home and she brought one onion, and it was like, wow, let's make salad with one onion. So it was really, really difficult. At the end of June, in an attempt to break the blockade, the president of France landed in Sarajevo. Facing international pressure, Bosnian Serb forces handed over control of the airport to UN peacekeepers. A few days later, UNHCR helped launch the humanitarian airlift, bringing in much-needed food and medicine. The airlift lasted until 1996, the longest in history. And that's the first time that I actually heard of UNHCR because the humanitarian assistance started arriving and that actually saved us. As soon as the airport was open, then a, a number of nations all wanted to send in supplies. Bearing in mind, this airport is literally the front line in a war zone. The two ends of the territory off the two ends of the runway were under Serb-controlled territory, and the territory off the two sides of the runway under Bosnian government control. Tony Land began his post as head of the Sarajevo office in 1993. It was his job to negotiate between the warring sides to keep the airlift going. The airlift tended to be you know, on for a, a, a little while, a few, a few days or weeks, and then something happened which would bring it to a halt. And, and then my job was to go to all the warring factions and ask them to reaffirm their uh, willingness for the airlift to begin again, and so it did. In all, some 160,000 tonnes of food, medicine and other goods were delivered to Sarajevo. Those supplies came in on more than 12,000 flights. The food was stored in a giant warehouse and rations were distributed every two weeks. The difficult thing was that once that distribution had been done, I was in a city with about a third of a million people, 
and when I walked into the warehouse, which I often did at that time to check it was indeed you know, had been distributed fully, it was a totally empty warehouse. So it was just this overwhelming sense of responsibility. Are you okay? Hi. Yeah. How are you today? Good. Hello. We're from Humanitarna Pomosh, okay, from HCR. UNHCR's Larry Hollingworth on a mission to one of Bosnia's enclaves. He was responsible for getting food and supplies to areas outside Sarajevo. To get out of Sarajevo, we have to negotiate exit out, and then we have to negotiate access across land which was disputed, and then we have to negotiate access into the enclaves. Now, this was not something we wanted to do, because people have a right to be fed, and it was our duty to feed people. But you have to go and say, look, you know, this is the situation there. I need you to make sure that when I go out with this convoy, that we're not ambushed, we're not shot at, we're not mined. So all of that was negotiation and negotiation. The convoys travelled with UN peacekeepers, but even after lengthy negotiations, access wasn't always granted. We, we would leave and you get to a checkpoint and people would stop you and they'd say you can't go through. So there were times when I, I said, look guys, we know, okay, we'll stay at the checkpoint. We'll be the biggest nuisance ever, right? We'll block the road, but we're not going back. They would get very, very angry. And normally we would, after a day or two or three or whatever it is, we would get through. One of the most difficult areas to get into, Srebrenica. It was declared a UN protected safe area. The enclave would later become a flashpoint in the war. In 1995, 8,000 Muslim men and boys were killed there by Bosnian Serb forces. Larry recalls one visit a few years before. It was a hard job getting in. I mean, uh, on our way in, uh, we were mined, uh, we lost a truck and so on. When we got in there, though, I've never seen such a place which was so, so sad. It was silent. There was absolutely no food. And a young doctor came to me and said to me, come and see the hospital. And I went to see the hospital with him. And he had people on each, any corner of the hospital, on the floor, on tables. There were sick. There were people who had been wounded. And whilst they were there, he said to me, you've got a vehicle with you? I said, yes. He said, get your battery out. He said, I'm, I've got to do a stomach operation now. He said, I need the light. I need the light. Give me the battery. So we took the battery out of the vehicle. And we, he did this operation. And, of course, he did the operations. And he had done them with no anaesthetic. Because of limited resources, UNHCR organised medical evacuations for those injured and in need of further surgery, including burn victims or other urgent medical cases, children with cancer. Patients were sent all over the world. Layla joined the refugee agency and was part of the evacuation team. And it was very difficult. It was heart-wrenching because you can imagine we managed to evacuate in the end only 1,100 only which was an, an enormous number for me over a period of two and a half years, three. But considering the numbers that were injured and in need of assistance like that, it was never enough. And it was the most difficult thing to explain to them, to their families. How do you tell someone, well, I'm sorry, you will be in need of rehabilitation, which was not possible for them while living under siege. Another patient she still remembers, a 12-year-old girl who had throat cancer. She was 
really scared. And she kept holding my hand from the hospital to the airport. And she kept saying, but I'll be fine. I'll be fine. Right. And I kept saying, yes, absolutely. Of course, you'll be fine. It was an, an emergency evacuation uh, because her windpipe was about to closed completely with cancerous tissue. So we had to move quickly. The Canadian medical team is uh, running with her on stretcher and they're running towards the plane and she's turning around and she's saying, I'll be back, I'll be back. So to cut the long story short, she is in Sarajevo. She's married, she has two kids and she's healthy, happy, and I always think about her, always, when I remember what we were doing, I remember her face. Layla's friend Yasmina was also working at the hospital. She was doing her residency in pediatric surgery. Some of her patients were also sent abroad for treatment. I think she was about seven, eight years old, and uh, she was actually wounded by a shrapnel and it actually hit a vertebra and a part of vertebra then cut her spine. She was not totally paralyzed. She could somehow move the, uh, the toes a bit and so on, but she needed a very long rehabilitation. And then I, I got the news maybe five years later from her parents in England that she managed to walk a little bit with help of all these devices and so on. And then she was attending the school over there, which is, um, I was really, really happy for her because she was so nice. I mean, she was, she would never complain. She was so stoic. I, I, unbelievable for a girl of that age. Later during the war, a different evacuation by UNHCR would face criticism. It started moving out civilians whose lives were under threat. Critics accused the agency of facilitating ethnic cleansing. UNHCR's Arvasi Patel arrived in Bosnia in 1994. She helped move civilians in one area to avoid a repeat of what happened in Srebrenica. I think the situation here was that, you know, if we didn't move them out, people were being killed. So by giving them the opportunity to leave, we would hope that people would then, if the situation permitted, that they could return. After the war ended in late 1995 with the signing of the Dayton Accords, UNHCR helped those who wanted to return. And we would do these go and see visits to try and build the relations between, you know, people who were once neighbors and who had to flee in many instances, we were able to let, you know, help people return to their place of origin. And we started doing peaceful coexistence projects. So I think whilst you can't keep people there to be killed, they do need to find refuge. And then we hope that once things have normalized, people would be able to return, which is why UNHCR works on a return program as well. More than half of Bosnia and Herzegovina's population was displaced by war. 1.3 million were internally displaced, whilst 1.2 million fled to other countries. Violence was a daily reality for everyone on the ground. My parents were on the ground floor and I was on the first floor in my room. By chance that morning, I came down to the ground floor maybe half an hour earlier than I would usually do. 
and at that moment when I came down we just heard enormous like really close explosion I thought it was probably a bomb that exploded in the neighborhood you know you never think that these things happen to you first you know and then I came out and I realized that there is actually a whole floor that was destroyed there is no roof nothing you're operating in a war zone uh, you can take reasonable precautions, but you can always be in just the wrong place at the wrong time. I think almost all of our, my colleagues who were working in that period were threatened by, uh, held at gunpoint. I was threatened by a knife at the checkpoint. And uh, you are sitting in a UN car with UNITIA insignia and UNITIA license plates, and you have your ID card, and that's the only protection you have. They would be firing ahead of the convoy or behind the convoy. We would obviously stop, no question about that, yeah, or race through like hell or whatever you could do. But it was done to scare you, because you don't know. You don't know. Security threat to our staff has increased a great deal, because in order to do protection work, you have to be with the people. You cannot do remote control work and hope to help the people. Part two, Yemen. Let me be clear. Yemen is collapsing uh, before our eyes. We cannot stand by and watch. A warning in 2015 from then UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. Six years later, the country continues to collapse under the strain of an active conflict. Providing aid is both difficult and dangerous. Yemen today is one of the world's worst humanitarian crises. More than four million Yemenis have fled their homes and are internally displaced. More than 20 million are in need of assistance. Ban's successor, Antonio Guterres. With the war raging, Yemen's children are paying the price. And we know from studying the impact of conflict that those children will continue to pay a high price long after the guns fall silent. I remember when the airstrike hit my area. I remember we had a better life there. We used to have food and everything. Here, we have nothing. Now, Alia and her family struggle to eat. They struggle to pay rent. They struggle to survive. Alia is 12 years old. She's already been displaced four times. It's difficult. We don't have clothes like other children. Our uniforms are different than others. Our notebooks are torn, while other students' notebooks are new. I'm studying now, but it's difficult to continue because we don't have money for fees and clothes. Airstrikes and shelling forced Alia and her family to flee Marib, a city east of the capital. The house next door was bombed. <laughs> We were in our village when planes started shelling my uncle's house. My uncle's wife, his elder son, daughter-in-law, and their little son died. We had to leave. A week after we left, our house was also bombed. Alia's mother, Fatima, we've changed both their names to protect their identities. 
We traveled in fear and horror. Danger was all around us from the day we left. We were more than 35 people on board the truck. We arrived in Sana with nothing. Fatma and her three children now live with her father, her brothers and their families. They've been forced to move several times because they can't afford to pay their rent. We are living in a basement that is divided by plastic sheets and blankets. We are 21 family members in total. Fatima used to live with her husband and his family, but a few years ago, he left for Sana for work. She never saw him again. His car was reportedly hit by an explosive. They tried to look for him, but they couldn't find him. They didn't know where he was. Two days later, we received confirmation about his death. Fatima is trying to find a job, but she's also dealing with health issues. She had surgery in 2018 for breast cancer. If my health was better, I would have found a job. But since the surgery, I haven't been feeling well. I have been taking medication ever since. Her father also needs medicine. Combined, their pills cost more than 200 US dollars a month, a staggering amount for millions of people in Yemen. We still owe the landlord eight months' rent. We used to have electricity, but it was cut off because we didn't pay the bills. Sometimes we only have one meal from morning to night. Her children, including Alia, are all registered to go to school. But because she can't afford to buy them clothes and supplies, they no longer attend class. Instead, they study at home. My children can't play, eat or study like others do. I wish they could live like other children. It's a wish shared by Alia. I hope we can study and get nice dresses like other girls and nice shoes. People will stop saying we're poor. Alia and Fatima's story is unfortunately not an exception. Millions of Yemenis face the same dire situation. There are multiple aid agencies on the ground making a difference. To get a sense of that work, we asked three humanitarians to document a day in their lives. Two are from Yemen. The third has a special connection to the country. Here are the voices of Nouf with UNHCR, Dr. Ali with the World Health Organization, and Naima with the International Organization for Migration. Dear Diary, the other day a Facebook post caught my attention. It read, for displaced people in Yemen, community centers can be a second home. I started thinking about my first home. When the shelling started in our old neighborhood, we had no choice but to flee. Packing my life, memories, belongings, and documents into one suitcase was one of the hardest decisions that I had to make. That was the moment I realized how it feels to become a forcibly displaced person. I became one in the blink of an eye. On that day, I remembered the people I had interviewed as part of my job. I remembered how they would describe why they had to leave their country, how their homes were destroyed or hit by airstrikes. I wish I could speak with them now. I would tell them that I understand. 
Our beautiful house, which my dad built with love and affection, was hit by mortars twice after we left. Our house was damaged beyond repair, yet we were still lucky. We were able to move within the city to a relatively calm area in Sana'a, but many others don't have that option. I have lived through the experience of war and displacement. I don't wish for anyone to go through what we Yemenis are facing. Every time I hear an explosion, I rush to call my family when I'm not with them. Those few moments as I desperately wait for my family to pick up the phone are the longest and toughest. So many scenarios run through my head. Every night I pray for this word to end soon. My dream for every person is to live in safety. But every night when we go to bed, we're not sure what tomorrow will bring. Every time I go to the market, I see poverty dancing in the street. This should end. My people deserve better. The resilience of my people never ceases to amaze me. I still remember a kidney patient I met a few months ago at the Diocese Center in Mukalla. A middle-aged man, his face pale like the dry desert sand. He was so visibly sick, but we couldn't help him. There was no electricity. The backup generators were also silent because of a fuel shortage. There was nothing we could do but wait for the power to come back. Despite all that, this amazing man appeared optimistic. He said the fact that we were even open, regardless of whether or not there were any services available, gave him hope that it was still possible for him to live another day. I hope he is still alive. His optimism taught me humility, empathy, and the power of faith. I want to believe that the good days would return. Uh, sometimes I so badly wish for a miracle. There are days I feel immense pressure, so many of our doctors and health workers left the country. I don't blame them. Who can survive on $100 a month? That's the average salary of a doctor here. This war has knocked us all down. It doesn't matter if you have money or not. The real issue is, do we have enough medicine and medical facilities available to heal those who are sick? The answer, unfortunately, is no. I seek comfort in supporting and assisting others. That's what helps me cope. It gives me the strength to fulfill my commitment. I'm happy to see all the global accolades for frontline healthcare workers during the pandemic. It's true, they are our real heroes in Yemen. They all deserve medals. Today ended well with no major crisis. Tomorrow is another day. Every morning I start my day with a cup of coffee as I look out of the window of my room in Marib. My eyes wander from the wide blue sky to a partially constructed house. I'm not sure if it is my job as a shelter lead or the solitude that draws my attention to the details of the house. I think about the walls and how they hold everything together. Those days I'm not able to go into the field with my team as often as I'd like. Moving around the city is difficult because of COVID and security restrictions. We're not allowed to go out unless we visit a specific locations at a specific times. We are torn between protecting ourselves and the people we are here to help. This country has a very special place in my heart. I was only three when my family fled Somalia. I spent my childhood in Yemen. Even back then it was a poor country, 
but with rich hearts. When I left Yemen in 2015, I didn't know I would come back just four years later as a humanitarian worker, as if destiny wanted me to return and pay back this beautiful country. The war has taken so much from the people here, but their hospitality remains unchanged. I still have the taste of that food on my tongue, which our Yemeni neighbor would bring whenever we moved to a new area. They would make sure we were comfortable. Now when I visit the camp of people internally displaced, despite being poor and not having enough food for themselves, they would make sure you do not leave without having at least a cup of tea. We visit camps to help distribute shelter materials, plastic sheets, nails, and some poles. We only manage to provide basic items. Imagine living under 4x5 piece of plastic sheet held up by a few poles to protect your family from the sun and rain. People once living dignified lives are now suffering in camps. I will never forget a child I met in Southern Thais. He was barely 9 or 10 years old. He made us all cry when he told us he couldn't sleep in the tent, which was torn off and patches in different places. He wanted to go back home and to his school. He said he missed the wall of his room. He was afraid of insects and strangers coming in. Those fears kept him awake the entire night. That night, as I was lying in bed, for the first time, I really thought about the feelings of protection associated with the walls around me. No pain is greater than losing your home. I know. I speak from experience. That was Nuf al-Hashmi, a protection officer with UNHCR. Dr. Ali Jawal, health coordinator with the World Health Organization. And Naima Tahir, a shelter lead with the International Organization for Migration in Yemen. I think uh, we will continue to have to be with the most vulnerable people who are the people who are displaced, whether it is refugees or with, within their own borders. We have to carry out that because that is where our mandate is, that is where our expertise is, and that is where we are expected to be effective. Forced to Flee is produced, written, and mixed by me, Vagas Chuktai. Our editor is Shirley Kamia. Additional production support and voiceovers in this episode by Shadi Abu Snaida, Safa Al Ghahoum, Dunya Aslam Khan, Emily Sisask, and Mahmoud Madi. Special thanks to the UNHCR team in Yemen, the World Health Organization, and the International Organization for Migration. Visual design, marketing, and social media by Red Havas. Our executive producer is Barney Thompson, and our host is UNHCR Goodwill Ambassador Anita Rani. To learn more about the UN Refugee Agency, visit unhcr.org slash podcast. Thank you.